Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to the Soul Sugar Joint. My name is Brooks with an S, like Soul Sugar. And today we are speaking with a very special guest, born the daughter of the legendary soul singer, songwriter, actor, and music producer Isaac Hayes. Damn right. Our guest has greatness in her veins. Aside from being a radio host and influencer, she's an accomplished entertainer as well. She was a featured vocalist, dancer, and choreographer under the tutelage of the Godfather of Soul, James Brown, for six years. Yes. The name drops don't even stop there. She's also been a singer, dancer, and choreographer for Michael Jackson, Brian McKnight, Sean P. D. Combs, and Beyonce Knowles, to name a few. Not to mention, she has recorded and toured with artists like Madonna, Cameo, Bobby Brown, George Clinton, Indari, and Whitney Houston extensively throughout the United States, Europe, and Asia with her band, The Heather Hayes Experience. This is the incredible Heather Hayes. Hi. Um, I'm doing so great. Um, I'm really just honored that you have taken the time to speak with me. What made you um, want to become an entertainer as well? Was it something you just grew up around, so you wanted to try your hand at it as well? I just think it was something I grew up around. Um, I was always around music, but my parents, they just always uh, required us to try any and everything. So that's kind of what we did. And so at first I was like an ice skater. I was like, I loved ice skating. They wanted me to compete. But then I got into music and then that was it, music and dancing. And I was like, well, this is it for me. And so after that, I just kind of continuously did it. I went to a performing arts school. So it was a school kind of like fame. Um, and I had the bug and that, and that was it. I was sold. <laughs> I was so interested in hearing more about your interest in ice skating. <laughs> so when I was a kid, you never it's so funny because now things are really different as an adult. But mm -hmm. when you when I was a kid, you never saw people that looked like us doing those things mm, professionally, so competitively, you just didn't. And it was, I don't know, she had some kind of I can't think of her name, Dorothy Hamill. And she had some kind of page boy haircut. And I remember I was obsessed with the haircut because it just moved so much. And I remember my mom took me and she got me the haircut and I was like, it was all straight. And I was like, I'm going to be Dorothy Hamill. I don't know what I was thinking about. I don't know. It's going to be a white woman. Who knows? But it was crazy because we didn't have anybody to look like us to look up to. So I just, because I was, like I said, we always were required to try things. So I tried gymnastics, dancing, you know, ballet, piano, tennis. Like we did a little bit of everything. And so I, you know, I probably liked ice skating because it was kind of, in close proximity to dancing a little bit because I really liked dancing because I did, I took ballet when I was little. And you're talking, I was seven, eight, nine years old. I was really little when I was doing these things. And um, they kind of, in my lessons, they were like, well, we really think she should try to start doing this competitively. And somewhere in the mix, I found music and I was like, okay, hold up. no, because I couldn't do everything. Mm -hmm. Like I played violin. Um, so I was, you know, I was, first chair in violin and so I was just really into the creative arts kind of thing and so um it just became I couldn't fit everything you know while going to school and so I ended up giving up ice skating and focused on playing the violin and dancing and then when I got to the age of doing um being able to be in a performing arts high school it just wasn't enough hours in the day to get all mm -hmm. that done so then I stopped playing the violin and just focused on 
singing and dancing because I then at our school at the performing arts school you had to audition there was a touring company and you had to audition to be in the company um and they only took like maybe 20 kids and I remember you had to audition before you got to high school so I was like in eighth grade and I was like I'm just gonna go do this audition and I walk into a choral room and it literally was 300 kids and I was like oh my god like I was in shock but I ended up making it so I was traveling and, and gigging when I was 13. So traveling the world, like we went overseas, we performed like a lot of corporate gigs for Coca-Cola, um, you know, Air, Delta Airlines, like just different things. And so I just, I fell into it and I loved it. Um, it's probably because I would fall asleep in the studio um, with my dad, you know, um, they would send him boxes. People would just send him gifts and boxes of records. And I would take the records and create this entire show and costume it and make dance steps and force my parents to watch me. Wow. Um, so it was just, it was around us, you know? Yes. And so I just think I just gravitated to it. Wow. And with your, I guess, performances that you would do in front of the family, what songs did you always do? Where it's like, oh, this is the song, like come and do this dance for your auntie and your cousins. Like what I mean, songs it, those? it was always like, so it would never be one song. Like it had to okay. be an entire show. So oh, yes. It was like a, like it would be like a Broadway album from some Broadway show I had never heard of. And I would just take it and make dance steps up to each song, costume. Like it was ridiculous. Like <laughs> I think I saw Annie. And it's so funny because we now have a black Annie. Like I've seen a black yes. Annie. Right. I never saw a black Annie. I was like, I'm going to be the first black Annie. Like anything musical and dancing and, I just latched onto, and then when I was a kid and I discovered Whitney Houston, it was like, this is it. Like, mm. now my calling. Like, I was obsessed with her. I had an entire wall dedicated to Whitney Houston. And it was crazy. So I can only imagine the full circle moment of touring with her or recording yeah. with her. Which one was that? Yeah, so, I mean, but my dad was really close to Dionne Warwick, which is her yes. heart. My dad did a lot of album with Dionne Warwick. I actually, that was my first time in um, a, a pit as a background singer. So they let me stay in the pit with her background singers and I was rocking side to side. Like, okay, I have, like these are my experiences at six, seven, eight years old. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure that those were the things that really cemented, like this is what I want to do. Um, and so, you know, but she was, friends with my dad. So it wasn't like, you know, a shocker. Um, in those okay. So, but you know, when I started working in the industry, if I auditioned, I would audition using my mother's maiden name. Mm. I didn't even know who my dad was. That's definitely what I did with James Brown. I auditioned to use my mother's maiden name. He had no idea. And one of my older sister's friends saw me at a concert. And then I'm like, I think it was my friend's little sister. And then she ratted me out. But uh, I had proved the point that I could get the job without having his name attached to mine. Yes. And I always did. That is really smart because yeah. you're able to, like you said, it's on the merit of your own talent and your own skill. And so you can actually get honest feedback as well. So yeah. you had to be really strategic about how to navigate the industry and knowing like I'm actually good and I yeah. actually know what I'm doing. And this isn't just because of my father. Because I think people don't understand that it is a double-edged sword to have that last name because you yeah. have people that will assume that everything you have is handed to you. And that is not the truth because you won't get, someone told my mother 
um, well, why should she, you know, get this opportunity? They've had everything. Mm. So those are the type of things that you have to, you know, deal with because they assume it's an assumption because a lot of times you are given a harder way to go because of that name. Even in social situations, there's always an expectation for us to be jerks, mm. you know, and, and it's just, and it's just, it's just not like that. And I'm friends with a lot of legendary, like their parents are legends. Like I'm I, Ray Charles's daughter, cool with her. Betty Wright's daughter, um, Millie Jackson's daughter, um, Ruth Pointer and Dennis Edwards' daughter, Ann Nesby's daughter. Like we do shows together. We do, and so it's just, they're the coolest people ever. James Brown's daughters, of course, I'm very close to them. And Quite honestly, they're probably far more down to earth than a lot of people I know that mm -hmm. don't have that legacy attached to them. And but people just assume that we're assholes, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> and it's, just not, it's just not the case at all. Um, we are, you know, all of us we're striving and, and, and trying to achieve things on our own, just like everybody else. And so, you know, I would encourage people to always take the time to get to know people before, you know, you make a judgment. So it, it's hard. It's definitely hard. Absolutely. That's why you keep it a secret because you want to achieve things and do things on your own merits and know right. that the work that you've put in is paying off. And so that's essentially why I had done a lot of those things in the audition process. I mean, I always get caught and busted, but at least from the point of, you know, getting the job, they had, you know, they would have no idea. What was your go-to audition um I guess song that you would choose or if you had to so do most of my, so most of my auditions were very kind of specific so okay. um, you know with James Brown I literally had to just dance and they just auditions are, like some some places will make you freestyle and some people will give you choreography so with Mr. Brown I just got to freestyle with a live band which I've never done before um so that was really cool and I mean I just we had dances. I, me and another girl, we had already danced together. So we already had routines made up. So we just kind of did the routines. And technically, I really didn't have to audition for that job. It was just like, hey, you know, I think from his point of view, being a legacy artist and a legend artist, hip hop was really heavy right then. And he was like, you know, and he was being sampled like crazy. So he's like, maybe I need some hip hop dancers to give us a little edge, make us more mm. killer. Somebody just called and was like, hey, you need some hip hop dancers. And I was like, okay, I'll go. And I mean, you didn't know you were going to stay, but once we danced, we ended up staying like for two weeks and never went back home and, you know, rehearsed and, you know, they got costumes for us and all kinds of stuff. Um, with Beyonce, I had done um, some TV shows with her. So I did Jay Leno with her. I did 106 Apart with her. And this is when she started. She had just begun her solo career, but she had done Austin Powers movie and they were promoting the single off of that. And so with that, it was, you walked in the room and they just turned the song on. And they're like, this is mm. the on it. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so they were like, oh, Heather, you sing the, so you had to harmonize. And they were like, you sing the bottom note, Heather. And I'm like, but you just turned the song on. <laughs> and once they played that for a little while, the choreographer came in and they're like, these are the steps. And they you did them and you learned them. It was crazy, you know, but, <laughs> and this is why you really kind of have to be on your toes. Mm -hmm. um, as it pertains to auditioning and stuff like that. Because in that moment, it wasn't going to matter who my father was. It was like, can you sing the first part or the third part or the second part? And do you, can you get these steps? Absolutely. 
you know, it was a lot of, it was a lot of girls and this was her second audition. So she had already auditioned a group of girls and she didn't like any of the girls she had auditioned. So then that's when a friend of mine who actually danced for MC Hammer knew that I sang and that I could dance too. Cause you kind of had to be a, you know, a double threat. And she called me and she was like, you need to come and audition for this. And I was like, okay, cool. And that's how I had to fly out to LA to audition. But it was 50, 60 girls. And then they kind of, they, you know, cut you down by size and height. Cause Beyonce is a brown five, seven. So she's kind of tall and I'm five, mm -hmm. eight. And a lot of dancers out in LA are five, 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 six, five, four. And so they just cut you down by height and walk you in the room and put on the song. And I was like, learn it. Wow. <laughs> so there's never, auditions are always set up differently, um, but you're usually put on the spot. I'll just say okay. that. Okay. And what did James Brown look for in a background dancer and a choreographer? Honestly, I think um, energy. I think that that's what he really liked about us is that yeah. we had a lot of energy and he sped up a lot of his songs and his shows were so big. You're talking 20 piece band, five background singers, eight dancer, dancer. Like he wanted a big show. So he wanted a lot of energy, um, a lot of intensity. And I think that's what we, I know that's what we brought because he was like, I've never seen anything like this. Cause we had just, he just, he was like, he, he made the band start playing. He was like, dance. And we looked at each other like, oh, that's it. So we literally just strung a bunch of routines together that we knew and just continued to dance and just didn't stop till he told us to stop. Wow. <laughs> I know you were like, we're crazy, but I was like, we're going to get this job. Right. It sounds the same way that his music was probably produced, the way that they um, conveyed it in this movie, Get On Up, which you feel like that was an accurate depiction of who he was? I do. I think, you know, I saw a lot of comments like, well, they didn't touch on this and they didn't. I'm like, y'all had a 45 year career. Right. But it's really hard to touch on every single thing. I think that that was a very, very accurate, you know, uh, um, perception of him yeah. in the movie. Um, and I know that his children were on set to ensure that a lot of it was as accurate as it could be. I think what surprised people is even though he's so you know, I'm black and I'm proud and all these things. He was super funny. And I think that that's what people didn't understand. He was hilarious. I mean, mm -hmm. y'all understand, he was funny. Like, stuff that would come out of his mouth, you're like, okay, did he just say that? So he was hilarious. And I think that that's what threw people off. But I I feel like when you're looking at a person through their artistry, um, or even through their, um, you know, if they're giving back to the community, we're not one-dimensional people. Like, you're never seeing the entirety of a person until you're around him, right? I've been, I, I would go to his house. I would sit and eat with him. I would rehearse with my friends with his children though. So I know things and everybody who worked with him knew things that probably the public that's just watching and buying his albums just really didn't understand. So I thought it was, I think I felt like he did an awesome, awesome job. I really do. Oh, that's so good to hear. Cause I am like a biopic snob. Like I am a critic of like my favorite music artists mm -hmm. and how they're depicted in films. So that's like a favorite of mine. Get on up. So I'm glad to know that even people yeah. who know him know him are like, yeah, that was good. He did, yeah, he did a good job. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and I'd like to jump right into talking about um your childhood just a little bit, just wondering what stage in your dad's career did you come up on the scene like where was he at was he um he was album? famous famous at that point i think okay. um, um i think people always ask this question though I, I feel like 
when I think a lot of celebrities, which you probably, I know like Halle Berry, especially with social media and things like that, you hear a lot of celebrities like herself who really try to keep their kids out of pictures in the public eye because you want them to have some sense of normalcy. Right. And so it really was because I think what people fail to realize is when you're born into a situation, you only know that situation. So everything about it is normal. Exactly. Um, and so... It, I mean, it was just normal how we lived. It was when I look back, it was very extravagant when I was a child. I had no idea because that's the only thing that I saw. Um, but they worked really hard at, you know, after school activities, you know, oh my goodness, things like that. They worked really hard at all of those things. And so I didn't know he was famous, famous like that um, mm. until I was. I don't think you realize those things until you get preteen age, because then your peers and people you go to school with, they know it. But, you know, when you're little, you're like, eh. I mean, it's just dad. He comes. He's, he's gone a lot. When he does come home, it's like your grades are bad. You're going to be on punishment. Like, <laughs> you're like, it's just normal stuff. And yeah. so um, you don't really have a full grasp on the fact that he's famous. And I also think that until you become an adult, I didn't understand the impact of not only was he mm -hmm. famous, but the impact that he really had on black music. Had no idea. I mean, because you don't you don't really care. You're like, oh, he's trying to tell me what to do. Like, oh my yeah. God. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean your dad. Like, it's our dad. It's like nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> and people don't understand that, but you're really like, they're super normal. They really are. It's just not, it's just not what people think. I think, I think um a lot of times celebrities' uh, appearances, outward appearances, when they are being there, you know, I'm Isaac Hayes or I'm who, it, it's just different when they're in the house. I mean, he loved to cook. He loved movies. He loved video games. He loved regular games. Like he would make you play Monopoly till he won. It's like, oh my God, we're <laughs> You know, these are the things that like literally, it was just normal. And so yeah. um, I think the difficult part and the painful part was when the teasing and the bullying came, I just couldn't understand it. Like, why? Like, who cares? Mm. You know, you won't really understand because you're not viewing them in that way. And so that was extremely difficult and extremely isolating for me. So you um, get teased for being his daughter growing up? Yes. Oh, I mean, it was like, you think you're this because your father's that. And I'm like, no, who um, cares? <laughs> Like, and you don't, like, I'm, what I'm saying is you don't understand that how fortunate you are. You don't understand that you're living in a way that most people are not. And I, and the funny thing is, is that when you get older, you kind of go back through your life um, and you just think about things. And I remember one specific time um, I had a, I was 12 or 13 years old and I had a Halloween party hmm. at my house. And mind you, we weren't really allowed to have a lot of people at our houses, especially if he was at home. I didn't get it then, but I get it now. Didn't get it then. It was annoying, but I was allowed to have a Halloween party. And so I invited about 10 girlfriends to come over in costumes. And I remember when, and it's so funny because I visualize it now, when the parent came to drop them off at the front door, they looked like, what in the world? <laughs> And I, and I think about it now. Back then I was like, I was so happy to see my friends. I mean, I noticed it, but it's like, but when I look back, I'm like, 
of course, look at the house. Like the driveway was super windy up the yeah. It was a huge yeah, house. Got money. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, hi, you know. So mm-hmm. you don't really realize that you're living a different life in those moments. You don't. And then, so in turn, mm-hmm. you don't really understand why people care so much and why people are being so mean to you for it. So it makes right. it even more difficult to kind of deal with and digest. Exactly. And I know that there's this big thing on social media right now. Everyone's calling everyone a Nepo baby, like nepotism, this, Nepo, that. Um, I know Willow Smith and Jaden Smith are like this generation's view of like Black Hollywood Nepo babies and all that. Do you recognize like the magnitude of being, of having the gifts that you have, knowing who your father is and how everything just falls into place? Is that something that you've reflected on, I guess, recently or throughout your life? So, I mean, I do know, so first of all, I do realize that there's definitely nepotism. And to say that I didn't have an experience, it would be dishonest. I, I'm sure I have. Um, but, you know, even when I, and I feel so bad because when you look at, when we're in a space of like social media and things like that, when I look at like a Willow or a Jaded, it's just, it's nepotism, but there are requirements with that. Like they cannot suck. A little bit, but they can't have a bad day. They can't, you know, you because it's just right. not allowed because I think that people think that money and fame and all that solves everything. And it just doesn't. Like, these are people. And so I'm, I was well aware that there was nepotism. I always thought it was ridiculous, though, because it's kind of like I remember um, Mr. Brown used to um, do a lot of shows at um, the House of Blues and stuff. And so one time I was doing a show with him, but they took me there in the gift shop and they were like, this is Isaac's daughter. And my dad had some connection with the House of Blues and they were just giving me coats free and, you know, all this stuff free. And in my mind, I'm like, well, he can actually afford to buy it. Like, why are they giving us all this? It just I always thought about that. I'm always crazy to me. Like, it, it never made sense to me. I went to a, a, a signing at the Virgin Megastore in Hollywood with James Brown. He took me with him for some reason, maybe to just keep Yama in one of his daughter's company. And they were just, this is when CDs were out. They were just giving me CDs. I mean, he could buy these CDs. Like, so I understand those types of things. And I realized that nepotism is alive, alive and well. But with that being said, the people that I know, whether it be James Brown's daughter or Betty Wright's daughter, or I mean, I just know so many Ellie Reed's son, or I just know a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. These people still work hard, right? That's still a requirement. Right. Because with that nepotism, it also comes a heavier weight. Like it's a weight on your shoulders. So it's like, I can't go into a situation having a bad show or a bad day because I'm going to mm-hmm. instantly be labeled, right? And so it just, it makes it increasingly difficult. But yeah. that would be dis- disingenuous to say that I don't realize there's nepotism. I realize that doors would open for me. Some doors will open for me based upon what he has accomplished. But when I get through those doors, if I don't deliver, they're going to rip me apart. Yeah. The heaviness of it. Because I don't want to do this because he did it. I just want to do it because I love it. Yes. So, you know what I mean? That's the, you know, that's the, that's the problem with, you know, that type of, you know, nepotism that people don't understand that other piece of it that, when it comes to that, it's a weight with it. And yes. you just kind of got to be on point. You know, and you how do you exhale from all that pressure? Um, it's not easy because when you look at, I just think that, I, honestly, I think it was my mom. 
Um, because it's just, that's when spirituality and God and all those types of things come into play. And that's what was she taught us, you know, in our home. Um, because you, you really can't even, I, I had to have this conversation with my dad because he was really oblivious. Like, you don't understand what it's like to be your child. Like, you don't get mm -hmm. it. And so even having to explain that to him was like, wow, but he has his own stuff being who he is, right? So I just think that, you know, understanding faith and understanding that there's a higher power um, really gave me something else to lean on. But I would be, you know, not being honest about it, it was it was really, really difficult, like really, really emotionally draining. Mm -hmm. It really, really, really is difficult. And it's so funny because when I talk to a lot of my friends that we've all had similar experiences, we all say the same thing. You know, it can be it can be soul crushing, actually, because you feel really isolated and it's just it's just really difficult. But mm -hmm. that's the only way, honestly, that I got through it. And that I still continue, even as an adult, you still deal with it, which is ridiculous to me because I'm like, we're 500 years old. Like, who cares? <laughs> but I mean, it's still, you know, it's still something that you deal with. And then when you see it, I think that I'm triggered when I see it done to like a Willow or Jaden or, you know, I'm like, oh my God, like leave these kids alone and just let them live and try to be who they're supposed to be in this world. They just came through their parents. Right. Like, they couldn't choose that. That wasn't something that they had they any control over. Yeah. And honestly, Looking back, a lot of us probably would not have chosen it. Mm. Would not have chosen it because you sacrifice. The sacrifice is you sacrifice your parent. You know, I didn't have my dad a lot. I would have just wanted him to come home with a briefcase and sit down and eat dinner with us. And when you're a rock star or a soul star, this is not an option. You know, so I'm sure there are times when all of us have been like, "Well, she was normal." Yeah, <laughs> normal's easy. Easier. Yeah. So when he would come back, what would you bond over? Would you bond over obviously music and which artists? So pro music, food, and working out, like health stuff, because he was a health fanatic into vitamins and things like that. Oh, so we always bonded over those, you know, type of things. But he was the type of person who really needed to kind of decompress too, and be in his own little bubble. And then there was a time, you know, my parents got divorced. He wasn't around, you know, a lot at all, um, which was really difficult. But I think I always say that I would have other kids experience divorce and they were just devastated. But I think for us, he was in and out the entire time because he was touring all the time. So it wasn't mm -hmm. as difficult, um, you know, with them being divorced. But, you know, when your parents divorce is on entertainment tonight, the night before you have to go to school, that's weird. You know, so it's just stuff like that that people don't really realize that you kind of have to deal with. Yeah. Were there any smaller stories that you remember about when you did hang out with him? Um, well, hanging out with him was not always fun because we would try to go to public places. I remember one time we were at Pizza Hut <laughs> and the lady came over and sat in his lap and started kissing his head. And I'm like, what is that? I mean, this is just normal, like, stuff like so it wasn't always fun but was she a fan yeah but i'm like excuse me we're trying to eat pizza excuse I mean, me right yeah <laughs> and it was so funny because my sister one of my sisters was with me she was like oh. and my dad snapped at her like no don't be rude we're like well she's being rude but she's being really rude he's very much like she's a fan 
This is why we are here to buy this pizza. We are able to buy this pizza. Hush. That's wild. Very, he's always very gracious and things like that. But those are the things I remember, like, and I remember <laughs> one time I was begging for, like, um, this Louis Vuitton. And so we go into the Louis Vuitton store and people just start coming in. And I'm getting mad because I'm like, y'all are going to agitate him. He's going to want to leave the mall. I'm going to leave this mall without my Louis Vuitton and we're going to have a problem. Like, I'm going to be really upset. Like, stop. So I can get my bag, please. And they ended up closing the Louis Vuitton store down so we could shop in peace. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Because in about five minutes, he's going to be like, okay, we got to go, guys, because it's getting too much. And I don't know why we thought we could just walk around the mall. with. I mean, we would just, it was ridiculous. But mm -hmm. those are the things that I remember about him that were really gracious. Like he was just always really kind. Um, one time we got snowed in and it was like a little country store in our area. And I live in the South and I lived in a predominant, well, pretty much all white area. Okay. And we were kind of snowed in, like we really didn't want to drive. And he literally walked us in the snow. And some of my step siblings were with us. So it was like, you know, eight little five, five or six little black kids walking in a predominantly white area with a tall black man with a bald head in the snow. And I know people were like, what in the world is going on? Like, I remember that he walked us to the, to the store to get food because we really couldn't drive to the grocery store. So those are things that I remember about him. Just like really normal and cool and fun and love to play yeah. games, and watch movies and trivia was his thing. And, you know, because he was super smart. Um, mm -hmm. He had a he was the salutatorian of his class and he had multiple scholarships um, graduating and he was really poor, but he chose to go for music um, mm -hmm. instead of the scholarships. So, you know, just those, those things that people don't you know, know about him. Like he was definitely a game player um, and just fun. You know, we just had fun. What kind of trivia? What was he like really good well, at? So I remember that game called Trivial Pursuit and I sucked at it. Like him and my brother, my brother Isaac, they always know stuff that nobody cares about. <laughs> you know, like super smart people know. And I'm like, well, who? I would, I would never even know that. How many centimeters is Mars from? I'm like, right. <laughs> those are the kind of, that's the kind of stuff that they would know. And they would make fun of me like I'm dumb or something. I'm like, whatever. I don't even care. Yeah, that's, you know, that's not basic knowledge. I'm doing yeah, just I'm fine. Like, Thank you. It's not my ministry. I don't care. Like, but. Those are the things that people like, he was really smart and he would knew, know stuff and he was an avid reader. Um, you know, those types of things that people probably don't, you know, know about him. And given the fact that he grew up with nothing is really remarkable. Wow. You know? Yes. I mean, it comes across in his music. I was just listening to everything today. I mean, even the fact he named his song Hyperbolic Sister. Yeah, and we still have no idea what that means. But I think my mom told me it's Pig Latin or something, but who knows? I'm like, okay. But world. I'm like, okay, super long word. Yes. Like, even the, yes. <laughs> even the classical feel of his music and mm -hmm. the juxtaposition of him adding in genres that did not necessarily go together. But when he was mm -hmm. masterfully arranging them, it's just like, well, this man is actually a genius. And which so, was, he was told not to do it and it would never work, which is funny. Mm, wow. In what he heard. Yeah, he just was definitely revolutionary in that way. And even the whole, um, prompt that he got from Al Bell from Stax mm -hmm. Records telling him like, okay, go ahead. You have all the creative freedom that you want. And he went for artistic freedom instead of commerciality because four songs being over 10 minutes each, like it's a yeah. 45 minute record, only four songs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hot Butter Troll is what I'm talking about. 
I think in that instance, um, the reason why he ended up, he had a first album that did not do well at all. It was called Presenting Isaac Hayes. Yes. He was primarily a writer, really, at that point. So he wrote all the, you know, Sam and Dave hits and all those kinds of things. And so back then, record labels needed, you had to have a quota to present. So you had an X amount of records and they were short in album. And that's how my dad was able to put that album out. They needed mm -hmm. an album. He was like, I have one. <laughs> and that's literally, you know, and some DJ, I think in Detroit, I want to say, Detroit and Chicago started playing it, which was very, like I said, it was a, it was, like the songs were super long and they were like, nobody's going to play that. Well, that DJ did. And that's what, what, how Isaac, Isaac Hayes became Isaac Hayes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I just was listening to it all day and it was like, it's unmatched. Like the, the shaft theme and even uh, finding out that he wrote Deja Vu for Dionne Warwick. Yes. And I love that song. So yes. it's just so crazy how full circle that was. I was like, oh man, he's behind it. And now I'm hearing it differently. Like I'm noticing yeah. the strings. Mm -hmm. Like I'm noticed, I'm just imagining him singing it and how yeah. the pacing of it and everything. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so good. And what's your favorite era of music? Um, ooh. I think I'm like a... 80s like late 80s so we're looking at you know Whitney Shaka um Angela Bofield like just Anita Baker and that's when I connected as like oh wow like I want to be a singer and these women's voices are awesome like Regina Bell singer singers you know I definitely of course you love the queen Aretha Franklin Patti LaBelle but in that moment in time when I discovered like, oh, I can sing and I want to sing. And these are the women, like I resonate with their voices. So it would have been the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. There were so many powerhouse female vocalists, especially in R and B and soul music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how would you, I guess, uh, distinguish between R and B and soul? Like if you had to come up with your own definition, do you think they're interchangeable or what are your thoughts on that? I just think it's changed. I think it's changed a lot. I think soul music is, um, a little bit more raw, mm. more organic in its in in the way that it's created. Um, and I think R and B is more polished. You know what I mean? Because then it yeah. then it can be received right. Um, because you can see the change in music. Um, from like the Aretha Franklins back then, and it, it was it was edgier. It was rawer. Um more organic because the way that they sat in the studio and literally created it on the spot, as opposed to when you get into r and I feel like it's a little bit more processed and a little bit more polished. Um, but I mean, everything has to evolve, right? And, and so I, to me, that's just the difference, you know, of it. And if you look at, like, if you watch these films of how these records were created versus how like a Whitney Houston record was created, it's very, very different because we have, we have a lot of masters of my dad's that have never been released. Um, and we have sat and listened and you hear them in the studio creating, like it's the coolest thing. And it's like, okay, like these are live instruments playing and somebody messes up. We got to start over, do this note. It's really cool. Wow. Really I never cool. even thought of that. Like yeah, yeah, so they had live cool. instruments, but I never thought of somebody messing up and them having to start over. Yeah. Where they're singing and all of that at the same time. Whereas when you get into late eighties, nineties, the track is done. Then you bring the singer in and then they sing and you might have background singers come in. It's different because I sang on, um, I sang on, Sam Salter was an R&B artist signed to LaFace. I sang and wrote on his album, but I also sang back on for Arrested Development. 
live and on their album. And so that's when you come in to where you're doing different tracks and you're stacking, right? But that's different than you have three girls around a microphone singing their part. So it's just, the feel is different. And I feel like it, you can hear it in the music. Oh, yeah. And I I talk about this a lot with my audience. Like we talk about the feel of certain artists today, like uh, Cleo Soul, and she's a part of a collective called Salt, which reminds me so much of like the influence that Isaac Hayes on has on mm-hmm. today's music. And yeah. it feels like a jam session. It feels like they're literally just sitting down in a room together, spitting off ideas and recording. Yeah. And that yeah. feeling is what I think when people say R&B is dead, I think that's what they're talking about. Yeah. I think they're thinking about the process. Mm-hmm. The process is different for sure. I mean, I've, I didn't, I wasn't around to experience it like that back then, but like I said, I've been able to hear reels of it. And if you, if you, anybody ever has a chance to go to the Stacks Museum in Memphis, there's a room and you can hear Otis Redding and you hear them working on the songs. They play it. Wow. So it's, it's just a very different experience. Um, you know, when you get into like the nineties, which is when I was pretty, you know, getting out of high school and going into studios, it was different because the technology changed too. So it made it much easier to record. It was a faster process, but I think through that faster process, it changed the feeling of it, um, it the rawness of it. It took that away. Doesn't I mean I love army music, but I think it's just far more polished. Right. What do you think, or what do you hope the future of this genre is? I really hope that it continues to um, include all of it because I do hear people like when you get to like Leela James or somebody like that, that's raw to me. Like she's still giving me old school soul music R&B. I really hope collectively that we can, you know, everybody play their position and I don't care if it's, you know, soul music or R&B. I just think that we need to make sure that we do not do away with live instrumentation and the creativity of creating music. Um, don't think it needs to be so, you know, microwavable in and out with a hit, you know? So I, I, and I think that, I think what the internet has done and streaming has done is you can really find people who are still doing that type, those types of music. You might not hear it on the radio, but there are people that are doing that type of music. And I think that people are being exposed to it. And I think that that's really, really important, especially for our community, because what I have noticed is, is that um, I have um, what you would call like a corporate band. And so I perform at a lot of, of, of private functions and the lion's share of my audience is white. And these are white kids. I could go to the University of Georgia for a party and they're going to ask me for Otis Redding. Whereas if you go to younger black kids, they're not asking for those songs. And I just really hope that we continue to introduce our community to our music where it started from you know that's really really important because the white kids know otis redding sam and dave marvin Gaye. they are asking and i'm talking 15 16 year old kids asking for these songs and so we need to make sure that we continue that legacy um of what came before and how we got from point a to point b and you know and, and allow those kids to they can go and search it online right they can hear it and so i just think that in that continuation, we just need to embrace everything um, so that these young artists are able to hear all different types of R&B and soul music and be able to create their own style and their own feel. 
Yes, 100%. That's like the whole ethos of why Soul Sugar Joint is even created. My entire ethos is that nothing is new under the sun and that there's so much beauty in the music that came from specifically, I love 70s and 80s music too. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, man, I can hear the influence of Isaac Hayes in Awaken My Love, Taj Gambino's album. Yeah. I just love making those connections and it makes timeless records. Mm-hmm. Like if that song or Isaac Hayes or any other artist from the past has music that still translates till today, why wouldn't you put that in your sauce too? It's going to make That's a timeless sauce. And it's important generationally that so we can continue the legacy of Black music because yes. music is, it bears from gospel and Black music. And so it's, I, I just think it's important and I think that people need to pay attention because even when you get into country music, country came from kind of like blues, that kind of thing. They write, they still write great songs. And I just don't think our community should lose that because that's where music came from, gospel, blues, soul, you know, essentially. Um, and it's just important that we make sure generationally that we continue that and we continue to teach children that. Yes, 100%. Um, is there any advice that you would give to someone who wants to be in entertainment and they themselves might have someone that they um, are being compared to? They might be a family member or a, a father. What would you say to them? What was your advice? I mean, my advice is basically you just really have to kind of stay true to yourself. I mean, that name that you are born into, it's never going away. I tried everything to make it go away. It doesn't go away. So you really have to turn inward and focus on yourself and focus on your craft and do it because you love it. Um, Work on it because you love it. And I feel like ultimately God will open a path for you that where you're supposed to be despite everything that's going on around outside of you because you really have to block out the noise and that's for anybody doing anything if you want to get something done really really block out the noise and that is what it took me a long time to learn that and i think that i would have had a far more pleasant experience doing it had i learned very early on that it's never going to be over he's always going to be isaac hayes people are always going to be in awe of the fact he's isaac hayes but he validated my gift i know my gift comes from god And so I'm just going to work on that and walk through the doors that God opens for me. And that's just really all you can do. Really good advice. I know that's going to help somebody who's watching or listening. And they say, do you that? And I mean that in every sense of the word, that's all you can do, right? You are here for a purpose. You came through your parent, but you have a purpose and you have to hone in on your purpose. And once you find it, you got to work on it. You got to perfect it. You got to perfect your craft. You have to be, you have to have tunnel vision for that. What um, songs do you recommend? Like, who should we be listening to right now? Who are you loving right now? Um, Coco Jones, let me just say. Oh, yes. Again, that's, and that's what I mean. Like they were able to marry like that soul, old soul music and, you know, and really kind of it's R&B so you can get the younger people to listen to it. Let me tell you. I, I love her. That that's my that's that's my advice right now. But I'm gonna be I'm gonna be partial to that because it's soulful and it's like giving me 1970, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Gladys Knight or somebody like that. So yes, D'Angelo a little bit. I see yeah. you especially, yeah. Yeah, very gospely. Yeah, and D'Angelo was another one in that time that embraced that soul music and kind of brought that back for us. And so mm-hmm. I think she's doing it now. So I everybody listen to Coco Jones. She's <laughs> Agreed. (laughs) She's it. She's that girl. 
Yeah, she's she's that girl. Is yeah. there anything you would love to plug now that the um, our time is winding down? I, I want you to have the floor and talk about what you're working on right now. Um, well, I work on, you know, I have 5,000 jobs, but I actually do, um, you know, follow me on social media, which is Heather Hayes on all social medias. I think on TikTok, it's the Heather Hayes. Um, but of course, um, by the winter should have an album out, um, probably an EP, I would say, because I have some songs, um, a few songs out right now. I, I covered, um, a Christmas song called The Mistletoe and Me that my dad did, um, with this jazz group. Group centric, and I wanted to do it jazzy because I wanted to do it differently. He actually recorded it before I was born, which was crazy. And it's so it's again, it's when you listen to it, like it's still relevant. I was like, how do you record a song in the '60s? It was in that movie, um, uh, with Michael Ealy, and um, when the crazy uh, man was in the house and they oh, bought perfect the guy. What was it called? Perfect guy. No, not perfect. perfect not perfect guy. When they um, when they bought the house, um, oh, I can't think of her name. It was in a movie. Oh. And I'm okay, sitting in a movie theater, uh, and I'm like, that's my dad's voice. And I was like, oh my God, that's a Christmas song. So I was like, oh, I should re-record this because he loved Christmas. So that's out on social. I shot a video for it. It's called The Mistletoe and Me. You can find it. I also um, um, have a single on iTunes um, that you can actually download. And I did a video um, for that. And you can just search it. Um, but also, I do a tribute to my dad. The show is called Hot Butter Soul. And I sing and we perform all the songs he wrote and produced and performed um, live with a live band, horns, the whole thing. And it's really cool to sit and learn the songs and you really are listening to the instrumentation and the creation of it is crazy. Um, and I tell stories, stories that some people, a lot of people don't know. I actually do. You're, you're one of your favorite songs. I do Deja Vu. Oh my gosh! Yes, that's yeah, my joy. It's a lot. It's a live version of it on iTunes. I mean, I'm not on iTunes of YouTube and me singing it. Okay, I will be watching. Yeah, you can check that out. And so just look out for, and also um, we have a show called Daughters of Legacy, um, which again is myself, Keisha Jackson, Aisha um, Wright, which is Betty Wright's daughter, and um, Janicia Bennett, which is Ann Nesby's daughter, um, Issa Pointer, and um, sometimes Robin Charles, Ray Charles' daughter comes in. We have a single coming out. And so be on the lookout for that. But we do do live shows. And in those shows, our parents collectively have been sampled so much. And so we do, we have a DJ, we do like the sample version of it, like this oh. is the version of it. And then we perform the live version of it. And then we do like some of our original songs. So be on the lookout for Daughters of Legacy. Okay. Um, because the point is to continue our parents' legacy, um, their musical legacy for sure. Um, and so that single will be coming out in the next couple of weeks, actually. Um, and so check that out and just follow me on social media and just keep a lookout on all the different things that I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is <clears throat> so cool how you have this almost sorority of sis of daughters. We just went to the it was so funny. We went to the Isley Brothers concert. Oh, we fun. Like, Keisha's mother is Millie Jackson, and we were like, she's super old school. And she was like, We need to go to the Isley Brothers. I'm like, isn't he like 500? And she was like, Yes. When I tell you that show when it started, I was like, okay, is Chris Brown getting ready to come out? Like, what Look. is going <laughs> I mean, it was like lights and smoke. And I was like, oh my God, the man is 81. And when I tell you that was the best concert, I was in shock. I was like, oh my God. Like, like they are young 81. Oh like, my God. <laughs> and again, what we have been talking about, about black music and the legacy and soul music to have, like, I was like, 
he had a hit out when it was black and white TV that we weren't even born. Like, and now you have a song with like Future or whoever, like you have a 63 year career and you still have a record in the top 20. That is just amazing. And so it was an amazing experience. And so the Daughters of a Legacy went out together in full effect. So it definitely is a sorority. Um, <laughs> and so basically, yeah, we have, a, it's a social media page for that too, but be looking, okay. be on the lookout for that single and then my EP in the winter. Amazing, amazing. And um, in the times, just one last question. What did you notice in your dad's songs, not even instrumentation wise, but songwriting wise that you've been able to pick up from analyzing it for from doing the show? So because I know some of the backstory, like I know the life or some things that went on, it really was organic and genuine as to what was going on at the time he was creating it. And that's wow. what people don't know. Some of the songs are like, whoa. Like, that's a real story. People don't really realize, like, that literally was going on. And so he took, you know, and I think that that's why people connect. A lot of times that's why people connect with music is because it comes from a real place, an organic place, a truthful place. Yes. And so in learning, having to learn the songs, which is why I, you know, that's why I learned, you know, as learning lyrically that, oh, wow, this is like a real thing. Like, this is actually going on in his life. From the stories that my mom told me and other people told me. Um, and I think people would be surprised at that. Yeah. And you can even hear it in Soulsville, um, his writing on that. I mm -hmm. think that he's very much a uh, an extension of Nina Simone's quote that an artist has like has the responsibility to reflect the times. Yes. And that's what he did so well. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your thank patience. You and um, yeah, it was just such a pleasure talking to you and getting a little bit more into what it's like to be the daughter of Isaac Hayes. It's just such a fascinating life that you are living and you're thriving in. And I wish you all the success and everything that you're putting out and working on right now. Um, and yeah. Well, thank you, Brooks. I think this is an awesome platform. And so I'm looking to see Soul Sugar do some big things. And so just keep going. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much.